I want to introduce our fifth one, Jeffrey, uh, who is audio, electricity report. You can give us a little bit of an update about it. Okay. Uh, RUF is a reform university fellowship uh, part of the PTA. Jeff is uh, a teaching manager in the Python Ministry of Education. Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good to be back with you all. I will tell you that I love being down here by the beach. Not only is it the ocean blue, but that's how I like to surf and get out. This is just a crazy place to be because I'm close to the James River, which is good, but it's not as good as beach. So anyway, anytime Carlos calls, I say, I would love to come down this way. So please have me back. And uh, Facebook will keep me up on that just some. Well, so I'm just going to give a brief update of, of what do I do and uh, just really quickly why that matters and what's God doing. Um, I'm a campus pastor at Christopher Newport, just over the bridge, and my role is to care for students, honestly. I counsel them, I teach them, I interact with faculty and staff, I preach the gospel, I serve the university when they need something for me, I can serve in different ways, memorial services, outreach to public questions, and so my job is to be Send us some help. We love reading the food. Send us some help. Or heard that prayer, and we now have two interns full time coming to work with us at Christmas Eve. But the good news is that we pray for one, and the Lord gives us two. So that is even better. So we can thank the Lord certainly for His graciousness. It's a wonderful students coming to work with me these full time eventually. One of our members will be going to seminary after he finishes his internship. Um, with us, and then one of them is married to a church planter. And so we're going to learn all sorts of beautiful things. So pray for me as I care for these beautiful leaders in church, and uh, pray for certainly all the students who will be this call. So anyway, good things. And if you're not familiar with what is RUF, you know, I have information for foodies. Please take it. There's a nice little picture of the family, and you know, all sorts of little things in there. So please take it and let you know who we are, the beauty of mission work on campus and why we do it is just But anyway, I love this place. Thank you guys for having me. Well, let's dive into our passage because we've got a really good passage, but it's got a little bit of length. And I want to show you that this is a beautiful narrative. This is the genre kind of looking at historical events. And so we're going to cover this in full. And so this is found in Acts 17. Verses 16 through 34, but it's also located in the bulletin, reading through the bulletin, as well as your Bible. And let's look at Paul and the Areopagus, which is helpful. This is what the text says, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus 
and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May you know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Paul then stood up in this meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What you have now worship that is unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human beings as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set forth for them in the exact places where they shall live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, Jesus, we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver. That Back to verse 21. Here we go. Back to 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day and he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him the judge from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. And Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul, believed among them in Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Paris, and a number of others. This is the word of God. Lord, we thank you that you send people, Lord, out to influence Lord, the world, those, Lord, who are shaping our culture, those who are shaping lives. Lord, thank you for sending the Apostle Paul to send, Lord, the, 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 to share the message of the gospel with some of the greatest minds in Africa to influence the culture. Thank you that, Lord, Paul is an influencer for your gospel. Thank you for the resolve, the boldness you gave him, or to proclaim your resurrection with conviction. Lord, thank you, Lord, for that beauty. Thank you for that Lord, truth. And Lord, may that give us confidence and boldness, Lord, as we are called also to proclaim your resurrection. Lord, to those around us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this passage. Open up our hearts and minds to receive it. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, when many of you meet maybe with somebody at Starbucks, or you have somebody over at the church, or you're you're getting together at the office, maybe meeting with somebody, when we're getting into a conversation, we don't typically right out of the gate 
drop explicit truth claims that just blow up things right below, like just hit them really hard and fast. We kind of ease into those conversations usually don't we? Our researchers say it usually takes about seven minutes or so to get into the thick of the conversation when talking about the agenda, the topic, the content. We want to. We don't very common just walk into a conversation with somebody and say, well, you know a dead man, he was raised from the dead, and he's going to judge your soul for all eternity, and if you don't convert Christianity, then guess what? You're going to stay eternally damned. Without at least a few pleasantries beforehand, right? Like we don't just and then walk away. We don't do that. We know, right, in a modern society, we're going to kind of climb the pump, start the key, start the engine, let it go before we dive into this, before we start going 60 miles an hour in our conversation. All right? And this is helpful for us because the Apostle Paul is doing that a little bit. He's being gentle and gracious, even though I'm sure he probably wants to, to have, see some heads roll because of the brazen idolatry in Athens. But what we see him do is show a little bit of graciousness. And I want you to note that because when he says some things in this passage, he notes that these are very religious people, that they worship very, right, just very often all the time, that they're very religious. And he's not happy, actually, about this kind of worship, because it's false worship. But he graciously notes these things, and doesn't just crush them and wag the finger at them right away. Because he knows that these Athenians are highly educated. These are cultured people in Greece. These people were masters of the arts, as well as masters of the various philosophies of the day who followed in the footsteps of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And he comes to them not with just an extreme emotional appeal right away, but he reasons with them, the passage says, about the reasonable nature of the resurrection of Christ and that it's not actually unreasonable. And so he does this in a gracious way instead of just dropping the bomb and walking away and letting them pick up. He's gracious, even though he's bold, and he's confident, and he has deep conviction that a dead man did in fact rise from the grave. And so we see him say this to a really a quite skeptical audience. They think this message of a dead man rising is crazy. They call him a babbler. This is ludicrous to them. But what Paul is saying is, uh, trust me, I know, I used to be that way. I used to hunt these Christ followers, too, who proclaim this. But now that I've met the risen Lord myself, I have become the hunter. And so there is quite a difference. He says, I have met the risen Jesus. That has changed my life. But I totally get this sounds way out in left field. But what we don't see him do, even though he recognizes this about his faith, his religion. He doesn't water down his message. He doesn't back away from it. But he puts before these important people, these educated people, he puts before them the thing of first importance in Christian faith. He says to the Corinthian church, like he does to the members of the Areopagus, he says in 1 Corinthians, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance which is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 
and that he appeared risen to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he literally appeared to 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time who were still living. Basically saying, go fact check me because you can talk to all the other eyewitnesses, even though some had fallen asleep still. But then the risen Jesus appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he said, he appeared to me also as to one who is abnormally born. So what is the thing of first importance in our faith? It's that we believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus, central to what we believe is central to what we have to proclaim and teach with conviction to others. It's important that we believe in the historicity and legitimacy of this event in the gospel. We cannot shy away from the central rea reality that Jesus did die, but he has to raise for us to have any hope, any goodness, for the good news to actually be good. Because when we talk about this, yes, he was a man. He was born right in Bethlehem. He walked around Galilee teaching, preaching, same thing in Jerusalem, teaching a new message of there's a possibility of a new life of hope, of goodness. And he did die, but now he is risen. He died brutally at the hand of expert executioners not in a nice way, but as a criminal convicted of something heinous. That's what he was. But yet he walked around for 40 days, 40 nights, revealing himself to over 500 plus witnesses before his departure to the heavenly realm, Paul says. And this is the truth which we must proclaim, even if it sounds crazy, because this is the central doctrine of our faith. If it's not true that Jesus did not raise from the dead, he says we are fools and we are most to be pitied because we give our lives, we sacrifice for a lie. Is it resurrection, is it too fantastic to believe? Is it too implausible for the educated mind? Well, a lot of smart people in Athens, they thought so. And many more still do today, right, in our world, but not Paul. And he was an educated man. He was one of the most prominent Jews of his day. And he had met the risen Lord. And instead of persecuting, he became persecuted because he was so convinced. And in light of meeting the risen Jesus, after being blind for three days, and seeing the Lord restore his sight and change his heart from the inside out, change his motivation for all that he was, all that he did, how he sold the world. He could no longer deny Christ and said, of throwing stones, I too will be stoned and counted among That is the difference. That is the power of the resurrection. And Paul says, this is what I aim to teach, what I will not deny, and I will take the heat for whatever comes, because I know this is not easy to say, but this is what is central. So Paul accepted his calling, he's willing to be bullied, made fun of, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, financially poor. He was willing to go through these things because he could not deny what he saw, what he felt, what he knew, and the fact that there's all these eyewitnesses who could also confirm his calling. But my question for you as we dive into this, is are you that convinced of the resurrection? Are you as willing as Paul is to take the heat that comes with talking about the resurrection to other people, knowing many people will stop at you. Are you willing to take that heat 
Are you willing or even able to reason out, to give evidence for the historicity, the legitimacy of the resurrection? And for us, many of us may not be, but I hope as we go through this passage, as we encounter God in his word, we will take steps forward and say, yes, Lord, equip me, because this is true, this is good. And frankly, all those who don't believe it, want it to be true, right? And so, we're going to pray as we go through this, that this would become a deeper conviction of our lives, and that we would be able to speak with greater uh, kindness, graciousness, but also of great just evidence and convincing and influence as we speak to people about the resurrection. So this is the kind of structure of the passage. In verses 16 through 21, we're going to see Paul explaining strange ideas to the Athens. Next, in verses 22 to 28, Paul's going to reason to the Areopagus that the unknown God whom they worship is no longer unknown. And lastly, in verses 29 to 34, we're going to respond by repenting for our moral failures and our just great amount of idolatry. Which we've sinned in mighty reasons to even know we can have anything true. When we read the Bible, this is just something good for us to know as we ought to read in this passage. We ought to never put ourselves in the seats of the heroes, but in, instead into the villains. And so we ought to always see that when we, when true fathers are being dropped, when rebukes are coming, we ought to be in the seats of So he's willing 
to put himself back out there because that convinced that Jesus is really He's willing to take his feet. And so this is where he goes. But when he does this, a group of very educated philosophers, what we might see as probably professors at a university, they begin to challenge the claims, challenge what he's saying about this Jesus and his resurrection. And they call him, some of them do a babbler that he's a crazy person, he's a crazy man. And others said, the argument for your evidence is semi-convincing. We'd like to maybe prove that I'm not convinced, we'd like to listen to you a little bit more. And so what they do, this group group divided among these members, they invite Paul to the meeting of the Areopagus. And Paul's asking, what is an Areopagus? Let me share that with you. The Areopagus in Athens was a group of educated men who sat around to discuss the moral teachings of the day, the religions of the day, as well as the philosophies of the day. Kind of like what a modern university is like, where people sit around and discuss the ideas and share with them, and then take that to influence the masses. Kind of what Areopagus is working in a way to do. And they are taking information, they're learning about the new things so that they can therefore inform others and educate them and elevate their minds as well. And so in order to do this, when something new tickles their ears, they want to know about it and they want to stay relevant. They want to be in the know so that they can use their knowledge and when. Some of them were probably using this knowledge for self-gain, for self-importance, right? To, to serve and worship the God of self because they're incredibly smart. That's their end goal. Some of them probably are part of the Areopagus to maybe learn some of this information over others to show them how smart and amazing they are, how well versed they might be. And so, in this group, this context probably looks back in motivation for why these people were a part of it. Paul is invited, which could have been maybe a trial because he's preaching unsanctioned to the religious teachings, or maybe he's just being invited as a guest lecturer to, to give them new information. Our best guess is that it's probably something in between a trial and being a guest lecturer. Because these people, they didn't really want to know and understand what he's saying, and yet this was something that was foreign to their people. So, we see in verse 22 to 28, Paul reveals this unknown God, and then he says, He is known. This is what 22 says. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Anarchists and said, Look at it. I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around your city, I saw the object of your worship. I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. But now that you worship of something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by him. He is not served by human He as if he needed anything because he himself gives life to all men and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should be and where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, so he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are the offspring. To translate, 21st century, 
we have a gospel centered federal by Jordan. That's not what's going on. He's being asked to speak about the strange religious teaching, which caught the attention of these philosophers. These people had heard him speak, and obviously he had spoken in some kind of convincing manner where he got an invite to influence or share this message with the greatest minds of the city. But the good news for us, Lewis, is Paul is not unlearned, right? He's not caught up with their knowledge, these people's wealth, or their status. He's not blown away by them. Right? They recognize me. Thankfully, somebody sees the grandeur of, of me and who I am and what I'm saying. I'm finally getting the recognition piece. That's not what he's going on here. He's there to share with them a message that will free them from the bondage of their unknown worship, their challenge with God, which are sucking the life out. And he's there to also rebuke them of some of their false worship and share with them what true worship ought to look like at whatever expense may come because of this message. He knows many of them there what to be omniscient, what to be God, and he's there to proclaim to them the God who is all-known, who is omniscient. They are not gods themselves. And so literally, right, because of the cross, he has come to lay the wood down in these folks in a manner that is both also very gracious. Because it leads them in a way, we see the beautiful smile to this message, this gentle rebuke. Some receive it with great thanks. Some are curious, they want to know more, but then at the end of our passage, we still see some still overly scoff at the fact that a dead man survived. That's crazy. It's a scientifically like implausible, right? And so we see this mixed bag, and yet Paul never falls knowing that this is going to happen. He still keeps true to the fundamental teaching he's been saying, and he directly challenges their God and their counsel. He says, one, in verses 23 through 20, he says, My God is the God of all creation. He created everything. He created you, created everything you see. He gave people the minds to build and manufacture all the beautiful architecture, all the art, all the beauty you see. God is the one who's given you minds to create because he's a creator. Yet you don't ascribe worship to the one who created the people who are creating the beautiful things. He says, God is the one you won't worship him, not the name of God. You all not worship Praise the name of Jesus. You have to remember, when Paul saying this, also surrounded by beautiful architecture, statues, right? All sorts of foreign idols and beautifully made God and crafted buildings. We're talking, this is magnificent, like works of art. You see that in the big time of the century. But these were monuments built by hands, not for the worship of God, but for the worship of Man's own ability, as well as the Greek gods and goddesses whom they worship. And so Paul is saying, even in one case, they have a, a place where they worship an unknown God. He says, This which you worship, did you not know? I'm here to tell you that all this that you've seen, there is one singular God who came to you, and I'm here to show him with you. Second, Paul said that this God is also the God of all. History and geography. Now, the God of Israel is the one who places all people 
And throughout time and history, and with all the movement and shifting and shaping of all nations, all kings, all places, all people, all tongues, he is the master architect behind it all. He's the one who created Adam, who's the father of all people, all God of Israel, he is the prime mover, right? Aristotle was called this prime mover, the transcendent God, which was unknown and kind of ethereal and you couldn't really grasp who he was or what he wasn't accessible. He said that God of Israel is the prime mover of all things, and he's made himself accessible in the flesh, in human race, and the personal work of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this God has made himself known. That which you say is unknown, I come to tell you, it is known. He's not just transcendent. He's not just far off and otherworldly, this God. The God of Israel is that, but he's also imminent. He's personable. He's reachable. An order that he might save a remnant of mankind, but also be our personal, individual God, that we are not God. But he is the God for us. Paul says thirdly that the reason you can worship this man God is because he's a very deep personal God. He didn't just create us and abandon us. Like some of the philosophies of the day that you guys are teaching people, he didn't do that. He gives us breath and life. He sustains our very movements, our jobs, our families, our children, our careers, all these things. He sustains them, he moves and shifts them in his sovereignty. It is not you. It is him for his purposes because you are just a piece of his grander puzzle. And do you recognize that? He says we are made in his image. We are made after an image of his character, his personhood, his nature. That we, humans, are the pinnacle of God's creation. And in the perfect state before the fall, Genesis 3, we reflected this beautifully before it was broken. He says, even your poets actually actually admit this, even though they don't know it's the God of Israel whom, whom they're recognizing, but they actually recognize it's something that's universally true. When he says, your poets say that we're the offspring of God, he says, yes, that's actually true. We are the offspring of God. But yet the God whom you worship isn't a God, but yet a figment of your imagination. This is in the middle of the thick of the conversation where Paul is dropping some heavy stuff on them. Which now they've warmed up to receive. He's making logical sense. He's working things outrightly, challenging their worldview, their understanding of their value system. He's saying it's baseless. But he doesn't just drop these things and say, your worship falls on deaf ears. He doesn't say this lightly. He says this in a greater context of conversation where he's building up to these things. He says, I know you all create standards of morality. You guys check and bring balances to the different religions that come in through the city. But he says, you're giving your time, your money, your energy, your gift to God that don't exist and will not save you or help you or heal you in this life or the next. But I know the one who will bring healing to your life, healing to your life who will free you from your endless pursuits, which will never satisfy you, or even expand your intellect where you are God-like. He says, there is a God that you can worship you highly, and he will give it up to you as he sees fit in a way that satisfies you. He is a God that can be known, and that this man-God 
who did go through a gruesome death, he did rise. And you can go to his place. And you can go to fact-check me to talk to all these people who are still living in this day and age who have also seen him. You don't just have to take my word. There's countless other witnesses. Because this God has made himself known, Paul says to them, there is no excuse to worship anything other than the risen God. And he says in verses 21 through 33, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone as an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others followed as well. Meaning in the past, in the Old Testament, before the crucifixion, God, he delayed the pouring out of his wrath on mankind for their sins. Because he had accredited to them, those who believed in the promises of God, the future righteousness of Christ. Because Messiah hadn't come and died then. But he's saying now, because the righteousness of Christ has come, this man God has died, was resurrected, there's no longer any excuse. Therefore, you ought to turn away now from your counterfeit God. Those things which distract you and distort your worship, and you ought to turn toward the God who can heal you, who can save you, who can bring deep meaning and value to your life, and truly bring shalom to your life. And the way he says you begin to do that is through repentance of all the things you go after that are God to fulfill you, to love you, to, to give you confidence, security, which you can't give you peace. Stability in your life, security, financial freedom, or pleasure. Anything you turn to to provide those things for you. And if not God, those are your challenge to God. You doubt God. He's saying that when you turn to those things, he says simply repent. Because our hearts truly are idol factors, churning out things to worship. He says, we are a people who can get down to you. We can get God in heaven better. We can get to the He says, set the sight on something bigger than that which is in Or conceptually call us our God in our heart. Instead of making God in your heart and in your heart. That's the reality. And he's telling us as well, because this is the world part. There are things in your life that give your heart's affection more than that. We spend more of your time, more of your money, more of your money, more of your gifts for these things, or pursuing after these things. Whatever that may be, that's your talent to God. I'll tell you right now, I've never become a God. Not God. And I don't like it. I've had those conversations myself. But you've got them too. And if you think you don't, maybe you're not a pride because you got that word. If you don't think that you're a child of the flesh. Yeah, you know, that's God's self-talk. 
we have to realize that this resurrection brings us from the body of Jesus to 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 the they kept the document on the back. And so God said to the doctor, and now that she was connected. And then that would be the The resurrection is a good news that we would all receive. Big one is all to share this good news. And it's simply we all the resurrection of the good news. And he said, we all can reason this out, parse it out bit by bit, and share the evidence with others. Not just know it for our own self, our own heart's position, but we ought to learn about this so that we can share it with others so that they might be influenced by the Christ as well. Some things I'll tell you briefly because we just talked about a lot of resources for learning about the resurrection of Christ. The three things I've been looking to and reading to, excuse me, to challenge my own self, I'm not just telling you to do this, but I need to call my own self to do this. I've been listening to this podcast called Hymns. H-R-E-G-E. It's an atheist and a Christian pastor is swearing evidence about the resurrection. And they're, they're going after these elites, like philosophers, professors. They're not going after weak sources. They're going after heavy hitters. And they're having a discussion from an atheist perspective, a Christian perspective, and they're talking about is there a way to make the resurrection? Often the book will show that, right? Case of Christ, very subtle, very helpful, a lot of very literal evidential points that we hear about if you're not a crazy person, you can get in there, but there's way more than that. The book Case of Christ is fantastic. There's one of it by William Glenn Clare called The Son of Life, which is historical evidence. These things, and there's many more. Will also sharpen us so we can communicate the message that Jesus is designed to be talking about. We cannot lie to this matter. We cannot do that. Because this is a case of what Therefore, we must be sharpened so that we can go short with others. As a gracious thing, this is what we do. Because when we drop a case on each other, it ought to be convincing. It ought to be something that is convincing, but yet is powerful. And Lord to give us Christ and his grace to be able to use this to fight on the cross. But I close the sentence in this passage that Paul has written. He says this Where is the wise person in this age? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, it did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who do believe. Jews demanded a miraculous sign, and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is also a stumbling block to the Jews, and it is foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not all of that. Amen. Lord, thank you for our lives. Thank you for our institutions, our places of great influence. Lord, thank you for the university. Thank you for our city. Lord, but Lord, we pray that we are grateful for these things which Lord, you have brought and planned and saved. Lord, we pray for them that they would be agents full of the good news. Lord, that we would be people tonight, agents to bring your good news to these people who have great influence in our city, in our town, in our homes, in our workplaces. Give us, Lord, a conviction or a love of your resurrection, that it is the hope that gives you power to change dead hearts, or train us and teach us to love you. Or help us to listen to podcasts that sharpen us, to read books that sharpen us, to read your scriptures and know what your scriptures say, which are sharper, Lord, than any double-edged sword or any other Help us, Lord, be saturated by these things so that we might carry your good news and others might be by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are kind and that you are We love you, Lord, I 